Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people engage in the love of a fiercely relational God. Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you're new with us today, I just want to say welcome. I'm Michael Mattis. We are working through the book of Acts. I'm in Acts 9 today. Um, this is a humbling and kind of huge passage we're digging into. We're just going to do the first nine verses. But we're talking about this guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And it's his transformation. So it's how he actually came to the Lord Jesus. One of my favorites, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, here's what he said. Saul was a great man. I have no doubt on the road to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But a few seconds sufficed to alter the man, how soon God brought him down. So before we even open this, let's, let's kind of maybe take a 30,000-foot uh, flyover. We owe over at least a half, over half, possibly up to two-thirds of the New Testament to this guy named Saul, who later uh, went by his Roman name, Paul, Okay. Um, what's fascinating to me is if you look at church history, uh, he wrote the book of Romans, which is really the bedrock of Christian theology, book of Romans. And chapter 3 in the book of Romans changed St. Augustine's life. Chapter 5 in the book of Romans changed Martin Luther's life. Chapter 8 changed John Wesley's life. And believe it or not, I could go on and on and on and on. The book of Romans is in many ways sort of the essence and bedrock of what we believe as believers. And God chose this guy, Saul, and transformed him um, so that he could even reach what he started out doing was actually going from uh, this road where he was converted on. And he went and took the gospel of King Jesus to Europe. So that's the, the other thing that I would want you to even know as we begin to look at Saul is Europe owes its faith and even the great awakenings that came through Europe and the United Kingdom, we owe those to, to St. Paul, to this guy named Saul. So, I mean, we could even trace that down. How did America come to faith? Through Europe. We, we could even dig a little deeper and go, okay, well, I already mentioned some people like Augustine or Calvin or Martin Luther, but you also have Wesley and Whitfield and Spurgeon and even people like D.L. Moody and um, Billy Graham that, that have carried faith across and around the world. But much of this came through the journeys of this guy, Saul. So what I want to open up this morning as we read these first nine um, sort of verses of Acts 9 is I want to open just a hair. What was Saul's childhood like? What was this guy's mental and emotional and even psychological development? What happened um, to him that shaped him? Then I want to shift and I want to talk about his zeal. He's, got, he's, a, he's known as zealous. He self-identifies in a couple places as zealous. And I'm going to actually pitch to you that he's got a couple of heroes of zeal in the Old Testament that he's modeling his life after. Okay? And then I want to shift from there and talk about Saul the persecutor, Saul the inquisitor, Saul the zealous Pharisee. And we'll sort of unfold that for just a minute. And then I want to talk about Saul the one apprehended by the love of Christ. That's the word he uses in Philippians 3.12. He said, I was apprehended by the love of Christ. And then I want to end by talking about this idea that Yahweh or God or Jesus that showed up on this road to Damascus didn't come to punish, but he actually came to love and lead Paul to repentance. Sound good? Okay, so here's what I will try to do throughout this as we talk about um, Saul and Paul, is Saul is how he was known mostly before um, he came to faith in Jesus. Paul is actually his Roman name. There's a bit of a misnomer in uh, much of people who read and study the Bible that God changed um, Saul's name to Paul. Paul was merely his Roman name. But here's what I would say. That there's nothing in Scripture that says God changed his name. However, Saul... Uh, this Saul could trace his lineage and legacy to the King Saul of the Old Testament. 
So there's a sense on him of grandiosity and self-exaltation and I am somebody important. And what you begin to see as God transforms his heart, that he goes by Paul, which, which means little or small or humble or tiny. And so what's very interesting is I think he chooses, as God transforms his heart, to reject this name Saul and to go by the name Paul. His internal image of himself is greatly diminished, and he sees himself as little, as tiny. And so he goes by Paul. Interesting. Okay, so let's open this thing up, and we will just start and see where we go here. So I'm in Acts 9, Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, I want to pause here and I want to back up just a second. Okay, go back to verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So let me just quick refresher. The church has grown enormously. King Jesus ascends back to heaven. The church is growing. Uh, Men and women and young people are coming to faith. Then this persecution breaks out. um, Saul is part of orchestrating the death of a guy named Stephen. Um, And if you go back to chapter 8, you you can flip there if you want. But it says, on that day when Stephen was killed, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Saul um, is instrumental in the moment that Stephen is killed. He's the first martyr. Saul begins to go to the temple, uh, to the synagogues, and then he actually begins to go house to house, dragging Christians out, some cases killing them, in other cases beating them, um, and putting them on trial, and then imprisoning them. Okay, so I want to do a quick cross-reference. You don't necessarily have to go here, but in Acts 22... Paul, or Saul, is talking about his conversion, and here's what he says about uh, what he did before his conversion. Um, Acts 22, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, meaning brought up in Jerusalem, so he's raised in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God. I want you to, if you're, if, I want you to keep that word zealous because that's what we're really driving towards this morning. For God, as any of you are today, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women uh, and throwing them into prison as the high priest and the council can testify. So here's what we know. We know that after Stephen was killed, Saul begins to go from house to house with authentication from um, the Jewish high council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he is kicking in doors, he's breaking things down, he is dragging people out, and we don't know how many people he killed, but based on what he's saying, it was more than just Stephen. So he is responsible for the death of many Christians. We don't know how many. And he's responsible for the trial of many Christians. So he would probably preside over these trials. And what that might look like is if someone was brought before him in trial, he would say, ask them to renounce the name of Jesus, um, turn back to Judaism, or they would be punished. And some of them would probably freak out and renounce Jesus. Others would stand stalwart and share and testify. And then oftentimes he would flog them. Okay, and I don't want to get too much into this, but flogging was like, it is this gnarly form of punishment where you have a, a, a braided, usually leather whip, coming out, six, eight uh, tails or, or, or strands coming out from it with glass, rock, and beads. And then the flogging would go across a person's back. And usually by the end of the flogging, there's no skin left on their back. Muscles are exposed. Sometimes it cuts as deep as the lungs. I mean, it is like, it, 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 there were times where it would actually kill people. So the Apostle Paul, I, I want you, excuse me, um, the Saul, pre-conversion, um, he is, like, he's going around breathing out these murderous threats. Um, it, it would not be unlike if we're meeting here this morning and all of a sudden somebody comes busting in with papers that authenticate what uh, they are doing, and he comes up here and drags me or a few of y'all off, and we get taken out to the city square and we get beaten, um, p- perhaps killed, and then thrown in jail. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a significant, like, oh my goodness. Now, what I also want you to begin to grab, though, is um, Saul is responsible for scattering the church. 
Now, when the church is scattered, what happened? They preached Jesus. They shared hope. And then what happened? People came to faith, and then the church grew. So it's like even before he surrendered his life to Jesus, how is God using this guy? To grow the church. I mean, it's amazing. Okay, so <clears throat> let's, let's open this up. And, and I, one of the questions that I wrestled with this, this week, and really for a long time, is uh, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. How, based on the Mosaic law, based on the Jewish faith, how is Saul justifying going around killing people and beating them and throwing them into jail? That's the question. Um, he's a driven man. Uh, an ambitious man, and even his teachers saw in him the future of uh, leading the Jewish sort of faith. And early on, they shipped him down to Jerusalem to study under this guy named Gamaliel, who was the most respected Pharisee of the day. So it, it wouldn't be like, um, I don't know, if you took one of your kids or mine and they got shipped up to, you know, Harvard or MIT or Yale or somewhere um, when they're in like sixth or seventh grade. Like they're identified, they're pulled out, and then they're sent up. And like the hopes of the future. Jewish nation in some ways are pinned to this young man. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, let's now open up this next thing. How, how is it that he can breathe out murderous threats? How is it that he uh, is sort of justifying his um, behavior and what is going on inside of him? And I, I call this message um, Saul on the Damascus Road, but I think we could also call it the deception of Saul. Okay. Now, let me pause here because I want to share something personally, and then we're going to talk about Saul's zeal and Saul's deception. In, I think the year was 2001, um, I had been involved in a Christian group um, over at UNCW, so 2001, that's, that's a few years ago, isn't it? I'm not a spring chicken anymore, I guess. Um, and that Christian group made some significant um, deteriorations in their movement, and I began to go with them down a really serious, dark trajectory. And I spent seven years um, in a really dark place, separated from my parents and friends and church. Um, and at the beginning of that journey, it wasn't at the very beginning, it was about a year and a half in, maybe two years in, I'll never forget, um, but my dad, it, I think it was 2001, he called me into his office, and he was a pastor um, of a pretty large church down the road. And he called me into his office, and he said, Michael, you are deceived. Just like that. And guess what I said? No, I'm not. And I wasn't respectful or kind. And he said, yes, you are. The nature of deception is that you often don't know that you're deceived. And I said, I'm not deceived. And guess who I accused of being deceived? I flipped it right back on him. The enemy does that, by the way. I flipped it right back on him and said, it's you who are deceived. And I was convinced, like if you got into like my 20-year-old brain at that moment, I was convinced that I was doing the right thing, I was obeying God, I was going in the right direction, um, and, and it was him that was in the wrong. And he said, Michael, listen to me. He like entreated me. Listen to me. Church history is replete with people. This is his exact words. Church history is replete with people who fall into various forms of deception, convincing themselves that they're doing the right thing, and they end up causing great damage to themselves and the body of Christ. And guess what I said? I threw it back in his face. I was angry. I was disrespectful. And we parted ways, and it would be approaching six years till I saw him again. Approaching six years. And that's probably a story for another day. But God graciously brought me to the end of my deception and myself. And the saddest part, I think, as I look back at those seven years in my life, is I was convinced I was doing the right thing. And I don't know if you know this. You probably know this. But you can um, take various passages of Scripture out of context. And you can proof text them. To convince yourself of almost anything you want to convince yourself of. And one of the things that's even become a defining moment, not only for me, but also for Saltbox, this church, is that I care much less about Michael's opinion and what I have to say. And I care much more about what's the Lord Jesus saying? His word. So, here's what I want to open up with you. 
how is it that Saul is running up and down the streets of Jerusalem? I mean, we could probably make a really solid case that the church in Jerusalem was approaching 15,000 people at this point. And it seems to indicate that the church in Jerusalem goes from some 16,000 down to the apostles and everyone else is scattered. So that means he is literally almost single-handedly responsible for scattering thousands of people around the countryside and around the known area and world. Does that make sense? So how is it then? What is going on inside of this guy? And there's, a, there's only a couple of clues that I can find. One clue I just read to you in Acts 22. I'm going to read it again. But it, uh, he is saying, well, uh, Saul is writing, and he says, I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So there's this zeal idea. The other thing that I'm going to cross-reference is Galatians 1. I love Galatians 1 and 2 because it gives this like insight into the development and training of the Apostle Paul. So Galatians 1, verse 14, you can just make a note, you don't have to turn there. But here's what he wrote. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age. So what's he saying? I'm super important. I'm being elevated, I'm being lifted up, I'm being promoted, okay, above people my own age. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Okay, so we get these two little like insights or like flickers into um, who Saul is and who he was in his upbringing. So we know he's wealthy. Um, we know that he's well-trained. We know that he's super smart. We know that he's been elevated. We know that he's ambitious. We know that he's been trained under the finest theological Old Testament scholars of the day. We know he's been promoted. We know he's super respected. He's been in Jerusalem for a long time, so there's even a chance, there's nowhere in Scripture that says this, but there is a great likelihood that he crossed paths with the Lord Jesus at some point. Doesn't say it anywhere. But there is a chance, there's even a chance that he saw Jesus from a distance when he was crucified. We have no idea. I can't wait to ask Paul that when I get to heaven. Um, <clears throat> so the question then in my mind is, what is it in this guy? What is it in Saul that is producing this unending sort of zeal? And is there anything in the Old Testament that would have um, trained him or shaped him or honed him so that when he got to this place and point in time that he would actually think that it was okay to run around murdering people and beating them senseless and throwing them into prison and destroying this new church? Got it? Okay, so here's what I come up with. If you look at heroes of zeal in the Old Testament, I'm going to point out too, um, there's a guy in Numbers 25. You don't necessarily need to go there, but if you want to make a note, Numbers 25, it's actually in verse 10. Um, I'm just going to try to paraphrase this whole thing. But long story short, Israel has exited uh, being slaves um, under uh, uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. They have gone into the desert. Um, they have hardened their hearts against God and refused to go into the promised land. If you're not a Bible person, you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll have to uh, go back and, and look it up at some point in the Old Testament. But long story short, what had happened is there was a group of Moabites who began to mix and mingle with the Israelites, and they began to have sexual relations with them. And in doing so, they also began to entice the Israelites to bow down to this um, God, uh, this pagan God called Baal. Okay? Now, if you read it, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you read it, um, there is uh, people, and mostly the Israelite men, are bringing Moabite women into the camp and getting involved sexually with them. And because of it, God's anger is kindled against Israel and a plague breaks out. You're like, oh my goodness, if you've never heard this, you're like, this is, this is, God, of, this is the God of the Bible. Um, hang with me. A plague breaks out, and there's a guy named Phineas. And Phineas is, I would say to you, is a hero of zeal. Okay? And Phineas, um, uh, he sees a man bring a Moabite woman. And let me, let me like just make a side statement here, because this is really hard to get our heads around. Um, one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers was actually a Moabitess by the name of Ruth, come on, somebody's doing their homework, very good. So is God against Moabites? 
No, what he's against is all of the pagan um, and, and idol worship and the sexual sin surrounding it. And that he's also against his church or his body or his people being led into slavery, sin, and rebellion because of what's happening with the Moabites. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a, a man, we don't know who he was, but he brought, it literally says he brought a woman into the camp right in front of the eye of Moses and the whole assembly, and they begin to do their thing right there in front of anybody, everybody. Oh, it's a little graphic, I'm sorry. Um, there's this guy named Phineas. Phineas, he's a priest, and he picks up a spear, and it literally says in Numbers 25 that he runs the spear through the man and through the woman and kills them both, and he stops the plague. Now, hang with me. I know this is like, oh my goodness. All right, verse 10 of Numbers 25, here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. So is God happy? Yeah, he's pleased with what he's done. Yeah, okay. Since uh, he was as zealous, who was zealous? Phinehas, that's right. For my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him that I am making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God. Now, if you look at, and we're not going to look at it today, but you can just take my word for it. If you look at the context of the way Paul called himself very zealous in Galatians and in Acts 22, it's the same word structure as what you get with Phineas being very zealous in the Old Testament. So, let's just go. you got Saul, the young lad growing up. He's fine. He's eight, he's 10, he's studying at the feet of Gamaliel. And one of his favorite stories is about this guy named Phineas. And what does Phineas do? He protects God's honor. He preserves the integrity of Israel. He defends the Lord his God. He is very zealous for the Lord his God. And God praises him. God elevates him. God says, well done. Okay, so Saul, this young man, is taking into his person, into his sort of psyche, okay, this is uh, what it takes to be somebody in uh, the Jewish nation. Phineas. Is Phineas your hero if you're Saul? Probably so. One of the defenders of the faith. What's really interesting here, and I want you to, this is like a side point, but it's so, it's so valuable, is so many people, even before they encounter Christ Jesus and surrender their heart to him, actually attempt to do in their human strength what God created them to do. They just do it in the wrong way in the wrong time. I could take you through Moses, I could take you through Peter, I could take you through the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here we have um, Saul. Was Saul called to be a defender of the faith? You better believe it. Saul, in all of his wealth of training and his like razor-sharp brain, steel trap kind of brain, he would actually become the one who would articulate most clearly the transfer of Judaism to Christianity. Does that make sense? So, as he is growing up, is he truly called by God to be a defender of the faith? Yes, but he does it in a sinful way. Does that make sense? Okay, so second hero of zeal that he would have been he would have grown up hearing about and studying first kings 19:10 okay similar kind of situation um, you got elijah um, the nation of Israel is being led by an evil king named Ahab. I don't need to get all into it. But um, there's all these um, prophets of this, again, a, a god, um, Baal. And Elijah, the prophet of God, meets them on a mountain. And they have, this, they have a whole sort of thing that happens. And Elijah challenges them and says, hey, if Baal is God, then let's build an altar and dump water on it. And if Baal is God, let's ask that he would light the altar on fire and I'm gonna do the same thing. And if our God, my God is God, then he'll show it by fire. And if your God's God, then he should show it by fire. So did, uh, those of you who know the story, did uh, Baal show up as God? No, okay. So what are all the priests and prophets? They're disappointed, they're delusioned. And then did God show up on behalf of Elijah and light the altar on fire? Absolutely. You can read the whole thing if you want in 1 Kings 18, 19, and 20. Now, then Elijah took all of those uh, prophets of Baal out, and guess what he did? He killed them. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, now I want to read to you 1 Kings 19, verse 10. He replied, so the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and, and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Verse 10, he replied, Elijah replied, I have been very 
zealous. Come on, you're catching on. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, and the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put the prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, so here's the thing. Saul is raised, and one of his heroes is Phineas, most likely. This is Michael's presupposition. I'm reading between the context of what he's saying and how he said it, and even the way that this word zeal is written in the Old Testament and in Paul's writing. Um, and I believe one of his heroes is also Elijah. So he is raised to think that he is the future savior of Judaism. He's the defender of the faith, and his heroes are people like Phineas and Elijah. So when this sect, let's just call it a sect, when this sect comes into Judaism and he begins to see 15,000 people wrenched away from the, Judaism, uh, um, from the Jewish faith, so adhering to the Torah, adhering to the law of Moses, he sees 15,000 people torn away, and they begin to do their own thing. They begin to separate. They're lifting up this Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Jesus, who didn't look anything like the Messiah that he thought would come. And all of a sudden, he is wringing his hands, and he is seeing that what is rising up is this little faith that could actually overtake and destroy Judaism. So what's he do? He picks up his spear, and he goes out to do what? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to stop him. And so you get this idea. What I want you to do is like fully get into this man now, his head, because how does it? Meanwhile, go back to Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Is Paul a murderer? You know, is this guy Saul in who he is? Is he like some evil guy that's going to lash out to somebody on the street and kill them? No. That's the crazy thing here. So that's why I'm calling this even the deception of Saul. So Saul has become convinced. Um, what's crazy is he's convinced probably rightly by the Spirit of God that he's called to rise up and become a defender of the faith. He has taken it on himself to accomplish himself. He knows that Phineas did it this way, that Elijah did it this way. He's connected the dots in his own steam, which we do, by the way. And he said, well, therefore, if they did it like that, there's all of a sudden this sect that has risen up 15 thousand people plus have broken away from Judaism. They're endangering the temple. They're endangering the faith. They're going to wreck the whole thing. So he takes his spear and he goes in, starts to kill him. Okay. Now that's the, I think the context in which I would see Saul's zeal. So does uh, the, the Jewish rulers at the time, the great Sanhedrin, the 21 ruling elders, um, would they have also been raised to see Elijah and Phineas in the same way? Yes. So all of them are wringing their hands. They're scared to death. Their offerings and tithes are going down, let's say. People are leaving the temple. Everything is changing. The ground is shifting beneath them. And they actually sense that the Spirit of God is raising up on this new little church and this new movement called Christianity. Followers of the way is what they called it at this point. And so they are all about authorizing this guy Saul to go house to house, tear people out, imprison them, beat them, destroy them, and kill them. They're all about it. Make sense? Okay. Now, Saul the inquisitor, Saul the persecutor, Saul the, ver the, uh, the, the Pharisee. Okay, so let's, let's just make a few more comments here. I think that Saul has now taken it on himself to personally destroy this sect, to personally destroy um, this Jesus movement, um, and uh, he does not want uh, these people to dishonor Judaism or to Yahweh, so he literally ravages the church in Jerusalem. Okay, and I just, like, think with me for just a second. If a church is 15,000 strong, and all of a sudden it's down to a handful of people, how many dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people did Saul beat and or kill and or destroy and or imprison? I mean, a lot. Like, I want you to get that. Like, feel it and think it. Like, he is, he has become um, sort of this violent point of the Pharisee spear in the, in the image of his Old Testament heroes in some ways. And he's trying to bring it now and do it in the same way, although he has found himself fighting against who? God. Okay. So, Saul, he's sort of a modern Phineas, cleansing Judaism. He sees himself as a modern Elijah cleansing the, the nation of Israel from the false prophets of Jesus. I mean, get that. That is how he is thinking of himself. Like he is like 
very important and, and it is essential. So he's justifying his anger, he's justifying his violence, he's justifying his killing by saying he's a new version of these two guys in the Old Testament and he is commissioned by God to protect the faith of Judaism. Okay, now let me, I said it one, one other time, but let me say it again in just a little more clear way. Um, oftentimes we do in our, in our flesh, in our human strength, we do, and we try to accomplish in our own steam a version of what God has called us to by his spirit. Okay? So when one of your kids, you know, goes bonkers and tries to do something, I, I don't always just go right to the discipline. It's like, what are, they try, what, what are they trying to achieve? What are they trying to do? What has God perhaps stamped on their little heart that they are trying to accomplish maybe in their own steam? Like it's, it's worth stepping back and thinking, what is it that this person or persons is attempting to do in their own steam? Um, and yet maybe it's not time, maybe it's not God's way, but there is a, there's this, it is so clear in scripture. Like think of Moses for just a second, if you've ever read Moses. He makes the realization that he is called to deliver the Jewish nation from Pharaoh. And he walks out of his, wherever he is, his castle one day, and he sees a, a, an, a, a, an Egyptian man beating and killing an Israelite man. And what's he do? He goes and kills him. So he's doing the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. Okay? I mean, I think one of like the hallmarks of this Jesus journey is that get and understand who God created you to be and then get and understand that there is a timing in which he will release you to be it and to do it and don't fight it. Like you got to go with God here because if you push ahead of his time, you're going to find yourself trying to um, establish by your own strength in your flesh what only he can do. Is Saul called to be a defender of the faith without question but it's a different faith that is is sort of being fulfilled through the old covenant and then released through Jesus in the new I think another thing that I would say here just as as we wrestle through even this idea of self-deception is is deception of others always begins with deception of self make sense there's a, um, there's a quote, I've used it a couple of times, that, but I love it. There's something so powerful about it. But Tiger Woods, when all the mess about Tiger Woods came out, was on camera and a reporter said, how did you deceive so many people about so much for so long? The, the reporter actually said, how'd you lie? How'd you lie to so many people about so much for so long? And he said, I got up every day and lied to myself first. Okay. How do you deceive a bunch of people? You start with yourself, okay? Um, now, you go, Michael, how do I know if I'm in deception? Well, you get in the Word. You get in community. You put people around you that you trust. You don't be arrogant and think you have all the answers. You ask for input. You ask for help. You ask for guidance. Um, and then you get on your knees and say, Jesus, help me. Not be deceived. Help me. And the God who gives liberally wisdom and grace will lead you, I assure you. Even in my situation, I was lived in some deception for seven long years. And in some ways, Abby and I are still paying for and dealing with some of the repercussions of my choices, like from 1999. But God reached in and got me out. God reached in and got Saul out. It's amazing. Okay, so let's shift here a minute, and I want to continue reading in Acts 9. I think we're going to pick it up in verse, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Um, but here's the way I want you to understand what we're about to read next, is this is Saul being apprehended by the love of Christ. So um, that's a word that comes out of Philippians 3.12. Um, it's in the King James Version. It uses apprehended. Um, but let's, let, me, let me quote somebody here that I love. Eugene Peterson um, said, Paul discovered a personal relationship with God himself. No more secondhand rumor, but firsthand faith. He immediately knew that God was not what he had been told at all. That was a lie. God was not against, but for God was not furious, but compassionate. God was not out to get sinners so that he could make them good and sorry. He was out to get sinners so that he could make them good and joyful. The truth about God came to Paul and the person 
in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's keep reading here, and we're going to see if we can unpack how Paul is apprehended by God. All right, verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed down around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, quick note right here in verse 3. Um, Damascus is outside the Holy Land. So in Saul's mind, where does God dwell? This is really important. He dwells in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the city of Jerusalem. And then uh, he, he rules and reigns over this uh, country called Israel. So God sovereignly, in the person of Jesus, waits till Saul crosses over the barrier, over the border between um, Israel and Syria. And now that Paul is outside of the holy land, God decides to show up. And what is God even saying to Saul slash Paul from the very beginning by showing up powerfully outside of the holy land, outside of Israel, outside of the temple, outside of the holy of holies? Number one, he's God, but then number two, that this faith is actually a for Jews and for Gentiles and for the entirety of the world. Otherwise, he would have shown up to Saul in the temple. Okay, so suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. We don't know that he was on a horse. Michelangelo drew him on a horse, painted him on a horse. Um, he could have been on a donkey, um, but he was likely riding something. It's a seven-day, probably, journey, about 150 miles from Jerusalem um, to Damascus. So he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's now on the ground, looking up, bright light. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. There's a number of ways to read that. It's, it's initially respectful, but it is, not, it is not attributing this to God. It is, he is not yet attributing this to Yahweh. He is just saying, who are you? And now verse 5 is so important. Here's what Jesus says. I am Jesus. Let's say that together. I am Jesus. Now, when God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, how did he introduce himself? I am. So when Jesus introduces himself to the Pharisee of Pharisees, who's been trained and he's more educated and he's the sharpest knife in the drawer, when he introduces himself to him, how does he say his name? I am. What, the, actually, the most important part of this is not even the Jesus part. It's the I am. So when he goes, I am Jesus, he is saying, Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms, um, I am Yahweh. So he is fully arresting this guy. Um, he, is, he, he has apprehended him now. He has knocked him, let's say, off his horse. He is on the ground. He is hearing this, he is hearing this voice. Who are you, Lord? And he's looking up and he is now seeing um, and hearing the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the sovereign one. I am calling you out. I am the one you are persecuting and what you are doing to the least of these you are doing to me. So what begins to happen here in this moment is all of the sudden, all of the, I mean, let's just throw a number out. The 10,000 people that Paul has or 5,000 or 2,000, I don't know how many, but the ones he has drug out, the ones he has had scourged, the life and death of Stephen, um, the ones he has had killed, the ones he is responsible for, the scattering of the church, these faces are all of a sudden flashing across Paul's uh, mind, I imagine, and he is all of a sudden going, I am persecuting Jesus, who is Yahweh. That means Jesus of Nazareth. That means the carpenter who came from Nazareth. Hang on a second. Everything I thought I knew to be true about the Old Testament is no longer true. What I mean, he's having this like cataclysmic moment inside his head where he's like freaking out and going crazy. What is happening? Saul, why do you persecute? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Let's finish reading, verse seven. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. I love that. 
They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink. If you want to look at the other two passages of his um, faith experience, you could look at Acts 22 or Acts 26. But he actually sees um, the Lord Jesus. I think it's in Acts 26. Let me see. Yeah, he sees um, Jesus in, in Acts 26. So he, here's the point. He is laying on the ground. He is coming to this realization. Now, here's the other thing. Saul believed that Yahweh God was a God who, when he was angry, what's he do? Punish and kills. I'm going to take the sword and I'm going to go kill. Now, does Jesus discipline him here? No. Does he punish him? Does he rebuke him? Does he say you're wrong and you need to repent? I mean, what's amazing is what this God of love, this Jesus, this Yahweh God who's now ascended, he's lived on earth in Israel, he's been crucified, dead, and buried, he's now ascended into heaven. So when he apprehends Paul, what, or Saul, excuse me, what he does is he is inviting him with his love. In other words, this is the Jesus that knows his name. This is the Jesus that knows his language. This is the Jesus that knows his story. This is the Jesus that has a plan for his life. This is the Jesus that he is persecuting. Um, <coughs> this is the Jesus that has called Saul out of darkness and into light. So in this moment, there's this cataclysmic in-breaking, if you will, of um, light that comes down on Saul. And all of a sudden, in his brain, if Yahweh God showed up, what would Yahweh God do to someone who'd been unfaithful to him? Probably kill him. So I imagine as Saul's sitting there, he's going, I'm going to die. If this is Jesus of Nazareth, if Jesus of Nazareth is really Yahweh, if the great Sanhedrin has it wrong, if Caiaphas has it wrong, <coughs> excuse me, if um, all the Jewish leaders has it wrong, and if I'm going around killing people and hurting people, then this God is no doubt going to kill me. And instead he says, rise up and I'll go, go find what you must do. Like, this is a God of grace. This is a God of mercy. This is not a God of punishment and, and instant incineration, which is probably what Paul had, Saul had in mind. Okay, so let's flip it right here. Can we extrapolate from this that every person is going to come to Jesus like this? No. Might some? Yeah, it's actually much more common in, um, in Muslim countries at this point in history. People are coming to faith more like this. <clears throat> Can we theologically infer to this that this is a God that knows your name? Absolutely. That he knows your language? Yes. That he knows your story? Yes. That he has a purpose and plan for your life? Yes, that whatever he has allowed from your upbringing all the way that will be used for your good and his glory if you'll surrender it to him. Yes. So what we even as people, how do we begin to apply this today? We have to begin to sort of stand and throw down some of the lives of the enemy that say God is not good. God is not sovereignly leading. God has allowed terrible things in your life. And you begin to have to sort of pull some of those things down and go, no, no, no. This is a God that knows my name. He knows my language. He knows my story. He wants to use it all for my good and his glory. And he has called me out of something and into something. So Saul, on this particular day doesn't have instant death, doesn't have instant incineration, doesn't get a rebuke, doesn't get punishment, doesn't even get condemnation. He got a question, why are you persecuting me? In other words, ding, ding, turn the light on up there. I am Jesus. I am God. I am Yahweh. And then King Jesus commands him to stand up and go learn what he would do with Jesus You've been against me, Saul. Now you're going to be for me. You fought against me. Now you're going to fight with me. I, I, this is the God. And if you could hear anything, and we're going to end it right here. If you could hear anything, this is not the God who is concerned with punishment. This is the mercy of Jesus that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of Jesus. And what we're going to open up next week is in Acts 26, when Paul tells this story, um, he actually quotes God as saying something about Paul kicking against the goads. That's what we're going to open up next week. But here's what I want you to grab this morning. 
God knows your name. God knows your story. God has orchestrated and allowed things in your life. He's both caused things and he's allowed things. He's not the author of evil, but he's allowed things. And if you will lay them before him and trust him with those things, he will use them for your good and his glory. This is the God of love that wants to draw you to repentance. This is the God that is not interested in punishment or incineration. or uh, Some of those things are real and have to happen. I'm not saying that God isn't a just God because he is. But what he will always use first with his kids is to love them and uh, welcome them into repentance. And I think what immediately begins to crack inside of Saul's heart on this particular day is this deception that God is a God of anger and and Saul is therefore called to be the point of the spear to go and kill and destroy the Christian church for all time. And all of a sudden he gets this revelation that, oh my goodness, this is God. Jesus of Nazareth is God. And not only am I not supposed to fight against it, I am now supposed to participate with him somehow in it. And I can imagine that the next three days of Saul's life were like in darkness. He can't see anything, but all of a sudden he can see everything. He can see it all because he has been in his life, the entirety of his life. He's probably 30 years old at this point. He's been bumbling around in the darkness. He's been living under deception. He's drank his own Kool-Aid in some ways. He has no idea what he's doing or where he's going. He is fighting against the person of God. And suddenly in this moment, he lays it all down. And while he can't see physically, everything is illuminated for him spiritually. Come on. Close your eyes with me this morning. morning and you go, you know what? I'm riding on my high horse, getting stuff done in my own steam. And I think Jesus and his love this morning might be apprehending me. Would you stand with us? If you're out there today and you've seen God as an angry God, if you've never seen him as a God of love, a God of grace, a God of kindness, and a God of peace, desiring that none would perish, not a God of condemnation, would you stand with me? If you're sitting out there this morning and you've never thought that this God has a purpose and a plan for you, and you want to see him and know him that way, would you stand with me? the last thing I want to do is anyone in the room or online who's never surrendered their life to this Jesus, you can be apprehended this morning just like Paul. I'm going to be down here after the service. Come down. I'd love to pray with you either during this closing song or when the service ends. And instead of having the prayer team come this morning, I'd like us to just worship in this closing song together. Let the Holy Spirit meet you. Let him sift your heart. Let him minister to you. And then I'll close the service in just a minute.
It was washed by your mercy. You are the treasure I find, my reason for living. So let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy. Oh, praise to the Lord most high. Oh, praise to the one who saved my life. Oh, praise to Jesus Christ, my King of heaven, my King Church, as we end this service, I want us to declare something. This is the Great Commission. David, would you put that up there? This is what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended. And here's what I want you to, I want us to say it together. I want us to declare it together. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to own it. This is Jesus to you. This isn't Jesus to Michael. This is Jesus to you. All right? Are you ready? We're going to read it together. One, two, three. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end. As you go today, may you sense the pleasure of the Lord Jesus on your life. May his face shine upon you. May he make your path straight. May he give you direction. May you sense his love and his purpose. And may you know his grace. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.